Well, no one told me about her The way she lied Well, no one told me about her How many people cried But it's too late to say you're sorry How would I know? Why should I care? Please don't bother trying to find her She's not there Well, let me tell you about the way she looked The way she had tanned the color of her hair Her voice was soft and cool Her eyes were clear and bright But she's not You might have recognized that song. It's a classic. It was number two on the U.S. charts the summer of 1964. It's called She's Not There by the Zombies. Hello, this is Pat Prince, editor-in-chief of Goldmine Magazine, and this is the Goldmine Podcast, one of the music podcasts on the Music Podcast Network called Pantheon Podcasts, available on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, iTunes, just to name a few. And there will be reissues of three classic Zombies albums. The debut album, titled Simply the Zombies, I Love You, and R.I.P., all on vinyl, at the end of July. And we'll have Zombies frontman Colin Blundstone on this episode of the Goldmine Podcast to talk about these albums specifically. Now, as you're here, it's hard for Colin to sometimes keep track of all the reissues of Zombies albums and use of their songs. But what's special about this series of reissues is that the album I Love You, for instance, will be released for the first time in the United States. And it hits like the songs, we, one of them we just played called She's Not There and also the hit Tell Her No. And now the debut album was called Simply the Zombies here in the States in 64. It had the hits also, She's Not There and Tell Her No on there. But the debut album was called Begin Here in the UK and had a set of different tracks on it. Colin will tell you about the frustration of that scenario, which often happened for UK bands back in those days. Just look at the early Beatles albums. Lastly, the album R.I.P. is an album that was scrapped in 69 and was regarded as the band's lost album and has some faves of Zombies fans like the songs Imagine the Swan and If It Don't Work Out. Uh, There's talk of some of these songs on R.I.P. being leftovers, but even Zombie songs besides the hits had an energetic feel that just drew you in with whether it be the electric piano of Rod Argent, uh, the bass of Chris White, and of course the singer Colin Blundstone, but also Paul Atkinson on guitar and drummer Hugh Grundy, which that's the lineup that is considered the classic Zombies lineup. Of course, that's different now, but we'll get to that with Colin. And Colin Blundstone will cover the zombie albums and music during that time when the first wave of 60s British Invasion hit the American shores. And also the tours in America at that time, like Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars, or historical appearances on music TV shows that the zombies took part of. So we'll be right back with Mr. Blundstone as he calls in from England. But first, a message about saving money on some music collectibles. 
Art has value. That's right. Go to decoentertainment.com and save 10% off at checkout with the code GOLDMINE from artists like Angel, The Vibrators, White Lion's Mike Tramp, Kansas's Steve Walsh, and others. That's decoentertainment.com. And now let's talk to the zombies, Colin Blundstone. Colin? Yes. How are you? It's Pat Prince from Goldmine. Hello, Pat. How are you doing, mate? I'm fine. How are you? How, how is, uh, how's everything in England? Well, you know, it's a strange time, but I think, I think it's getting a little bit better. You know, I think, uh, they're starting to relax the, uh, the rules a little bit, so it, it's getting back to a more normal type feel. But it's you know it's just happening very slowly, and of course, at any time, it could all uh, flare up again. So I think everybody's just you know we're, we're walking on thin ice and just seeing seeing what happens really. Right, you seem to be. I mean, do- we're probably two two or three weeks ahead of you because we got it before you did so yeah um, i think things are probably a little bit better here than they are there but hopefully it, it, it'll start to get better for all of us over the next few weeks now did you have did you have tours planned in 2020 yeah did you, you did okay absolutely I, I think we we had some very solid touring i know you have yeah and of course it, most of it's been postponed so, I mean, it's just going to happen next year. Mm. Uh, you know, whereas it would have happened this year, it's just going to happen next year. Right. Um, we had a few things in for the autumn, but in general, um, I think it was yet to be booked. Right. And um, so so we're not going to work this year at all. Uh, we, we didn't work in January and February, and uh, and then everything we had is, has been cancelled. So I suppose time. this... I suppose this the release of these reissues is good timing then because um, it's kind of a gift to zombies fans if you can't tour at least they can listen to they could buy these reissues yeah um, so I'd like to talk about some of those albums if that's okay um, absolutely let's talk about the debut album here in the states you know it included hits like she's not there and tell her no um, of course, she's not there. Was released here as a seven inch, right in the summer of sixty four, and it did really well. And then you uh, came here, and you did a lot of touring and, and appearances, didn't you? We did do uh, quite a bit of touring. Um, now, can I just say one thing? That yeah. In, in, those, in those days, in the sixties, often the albums were different in the UK. Yes. So, the, the running order was different to what it was in the States. And for instance, the first album in the UK didn't have She's Not There on it. They, they worked on the theory that if, I, I believe this is the case, if She's Not There was on the album, then people wouldn't buy the single. and They, they want to have a hit single, so they, wouldn't, they don't put it on the album. So sometimes the releases are, are a little different, but Getting back to the touring, I can remember exactly the tours that we did. We came over and we did the Murray the K show uh, opening on Christmas Day yes. in 1964 with the Shangri-Las, uh, Dionne Warwick, Shirelles, Chuck Jackson, 
Benny King, Nashville Teens. And it was a show that kind of went on all day. We'd get there early in the morning and everyone would do two or three tunes and then they would show a short film and then then we'd, we'd play again. And I, I think we would do six, seven, maybe eight shows a day. So we were there all day, which in a way was good for us because uh, as we were there over Christmas and everyone was away from their homes over Christmas, there was a, a really great camaraderie backstage and... This was our first time in the States and we first time playing to American audiences, obviously. So it was great that there was so much support backstage. It was, it was really good. So that was our first trip. And then at the end of it, we did the very first Hullabaloo uh, TV yes. show. And our, Jack Jones was hosting the show. A new Christy Minstrels were on there. And it was, it was really good. Um, later on, we came back for the, I think this is, uh, 65, 66, I'm not quite sure. The Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. Yeah. And we toured right through the States. We joined the tour in St. Louis, I oh. believe. Uh, they'd already played down the East Coast. And we went right across the Southern States and all the way up the West Coast to Canada. And then um, back across Canada from West to East. And, and that was very interesting. Uh, Del Shannon... Uh, Tommy Rowe, the Shangri-Las, uh, the Adlibs, lots of good people on that tour. So um, and our third tour, we toured almost exclusively just with the Searchers. We were managed by the same company mm. in the UK, so we often toured with the Searchers. And we did an American tour with them. I think sometimes we met up with other bands, but... The, the basis of our tour was the searchers and ourselves and they were the three tours that we did uh in that incarnation of the zombies which was from 1964 to 1967 that must have been quite quite a year you land okay so it starts with 64 christmas in new york city your first time in in america that must have been interesting in itself um then Murray the K, who's... I heard he was quite the character. Um, well, he was a character, but I can't claim to have spoken a lot to him. There were so many acts. Yes. And, um, you know, he was he was a performer himself. I mean, from memory, I think he was out talking to the audience quite a bit himself. So, I, you know, I, I said hello to him, but I didn't really have any chats with him. Um, but, yeah, he was an interesting... And I think he would often introduce himself as the fifth Beatle, you know. And I'm not quite sure if the Beatles knew anything about that, but um, it always made, made me smile when he said that. Um, <laughs> and then you, on Hullabaloo, I mean, that in itself was great too. Um, you know, it was strange, it's strange that uh, bands mimed back then, right? Wasn't that, didn't you mime for that performance? We did, we did and mime, yeah. Now and you I would, mean, that, yeah. nowadays, artists would take a lot of heat for that but back then it was pretty common and uh, i guess you know there were so many girls screaming in the audience you probably needed to mime anyway <laughs> well I, I, there, there was that aspect to it and um we didn't ask to mime by the by we, we oh. never asked to mime right. that, that was just how it was presented to us they tried to get us to dance actually because it was quite a <laughs> quite a sort of a variety yeah. So when you look back, I don't think they would call it variety, but 
if you were to look at it, there, there was quite a lot of dancing and, and you know, little nope. features in there. And they tried to get us to dance, but <clears throat> they had to modify their, their hopes a bit there because we, were, we weren't that good, to be honest. We were terrible. And um, so we had to cut back a bit on the dance, you know. And you have to kind of remember that I think <clears throat> we were 18 years old. Um, and Rod Arjun and myself are 18. We're nearly exactly the same age. Paul Atkinson was 17. So when we came to do these shows, and we were, we were pretty much on our own. We had one English uh, road manager with us. Uh, but, you know, to a large extent, we were on our own, really. So whatever people presented us with, we just got on with it, you know. Right. And, you know, they just said, mime. I think a lot of the TV shows, in the UK as well, a lot of the shows were mimed. As I remember it, uh, Ready, Steady, Go would feature one or two acts playing live, hmm. and the rest would be mimed. I don't know why, that was just traditionally the way they did it. And we often played live on Ready, Steady, Go. That was... Uh, uh, filmed in London on a Friday night. Now, I've heard mixed reviews about Caravan of Stars when I've interviewed artists. Some thought it was a good experience, others not so good. I think Jeff Beck quit the Yardbirds on one of them. Um, how did you find it? Was It was on a bus, and were you sharing it with other members of bands? Well, it was a bit basic, really, but... This is the first time we toured the States, so we've yeah. got nothing to compare it with. And, and in a way, it was very, in some ways, it was very similar to what happened in the UK. They would just have an ordinary bus in the UK, and it was the same with the Caravan of Stars. And yeah. It's just that the distances were longer. Absolutely. Um, and because some of the acts who were lower down on the bill were not being paid very much, yeah. this, is, this was where it got a bit strange. They couldn't afford to stay in a hotel every night. Mm. So every second night, what we did, we got on the bus and the driver just drove slowly, really slowly, so that we arrived, um, we drove through the night and arrived at the hotel in, in time to check in before we went down to the show. So we only stayed in a hotel every second night, <laughs> which uh, over, I think, I think the tour was, it might even have been six weeks. You, wow. you do start to get really tired. And um, there was no air conditioning? Was What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> there was no air conditioning, and we were going across the south, so it yes. was very hot. Um, it, it was tough, I'll be honest with you. It was tough. And, of course, um, half of the tour were black acts, yeah. and we were going across the southern states. Yeah, and that that did cause yeah. friction, yeah. definitely. And I'd never seen that before. And um, yeah, it was an it, awful time in, in, in it American wasn't history. In, it wasn't enjoyable. It was quite scary. I'm sure it was scary for everyone. Uh, I certainly felt it anyway. I mean, we, we it, it, yeah, it took us by surprise, really. Did you? Did you? Did they have radio on the bus? Were they playing radio? No, no. So no, nothing. I'm curious, the first time you heard maybe a zombie song on the American radio, that would have been pretty cool. Um, it would. I wish I could remember when it was. Um, I can't remember exactly. I can, uh, it's sort of changing the subject, but over 
probably over three or four years or something, I can remember a DJ being quite um, a bit critical of one of our records. And I was so more, not in America, I think it was in the UK, I was so mortified mm. that someone was being critical of one of our records, you know, on the radio in public. I've, I've rarely listened to our records on the radio since mm. then. I find it so difficult mm. because so much effort goes into them. Uh, and, you know, yes. you care so much that when someone just even makes a, a, a slight remark, a negative remark, I find it really difficult. So I'm not a great one for listening uh, to our records on the radio because I'm just worried what people are going to say. Well, those singles were so timeless. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> you could play it on the radio today and it just it sounds contemporary to me. Well, it, you know, it's really interesting because I don't think we knew it at the time, but there, there's, there's something in what you're saying. Yeah. I, you know, I sometimes think to myself, well, you could like the, this period of the zombie, 64 to 67, you can like it on, or not like it, yeah. but it is different and it is timeless. There is a timeless air about it. Yeah. I think particularly the later ones, Odyssey and Oracle, oh, and, and um, She's Not There as well, and then Odyssey and Oracle, I think yeah. there is a real timeless feel about it. Yeah, I think about She's Not There, and... And you can't say that for all bands from that era. So no, you the, can't. No. It's not to say that we're better than them no. and, or anything like that. It's in, to some extent, I think it's luck, you know. Yeah. But, but, and because of that luck, uh, our songs are always in films and on commercials. Yes. Uh, they get used a lot um, in, in, in films and commercials, yeah. Well, Leave Me Be was a single in UK. That got left off the US album. Unfortunately, it's I, 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 until I can think about her without feeling sorry for myself. Um, Decca and I think probably all the major labels had a, a strange way of, uh, of sort of addressing it is. singles in that they would ask for a single like every six weeks. Now, we, this, is, this is what caught us out because Rod and Chris, Rod Argent and Chris White, yeah. had only just started writing songs. Yeah. So they didn't have a back catalogue of songs. They were writing day by day. So She's Not There comes out in the UK and it's a hit. Yeah. And I think to some extent Decca were quite surprised. But once they were sure that it was going to be quite a big hit, they were really onto us for mm. the follow-up. But of course, we, we didn't have a catalogue of, of songs to choose from. And I think pretty much that's the, that was the only song, Leave Me Be, was mm. written by Chris White. Yeah. None of us thought that it was a, a, a hit single. None of right. us, including Chris White. Yeah. But it was the only song we had. Yeah, and so that was released in the UK, and it, I mean, to me, it just seems so short-sighted to, to force it. You know, we, we have to have a follow-up. Right. We have to have it now. Um, eventually, the band's going to, you know, with us, it was our second single, but yeah. with other bands, it might come a bit later. Uh, it's just really tempting fate, I think. You you know that you're going to run out of hits eventually, 
And if you're working under that kind of time pressure, yeah. of course it's going to happen. Well, so in the States, they, they didn't release Leave Me Be. They went to the third yeah. single, which was Tell and Oh. Which is great. Which was yeah. a lot more commercial. Yes. She tempts you with a charm Tell her no, 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 no I think we all felt that. I mean, it's an interesting song. I, I, I'm not sure time has been so kind to that particular song, right. but at the time, I think it had a really commercial ed- edge. Oh, yeah, it hit number six in Billboard in uh, March 65. And, and you know, I think about, um, even though I think that there was a beautiful cover of You've Got, You've Really Got a Hold on Me from Smokey Robinson, it would have been nice for Leave Me Be to be in its place or something just because it's an original you know yeah um i think people just felt a bit apprehensive as it yeah uh failed so miserably in the uk i I think people thought well okay and r&b r&b covers were popular so (laughs) well from that our very first album we had to use r&b covers yeah because sort of six weeks before we we just decided we were going to be a professional band. I mean, yeah. we were very young, you know. I, yeah, I, I yeah. think I was 18, and yeah. Paul Atkinson was 17. I, I think I already said that. Um, uh, as, as young kids do, we just decide, yeah, we're going to be a professional band. We won a, a big rock competition uh, out of about 100 bands, um, and, and we thought, well, maybe we stand a, a bit of a chance. And no one was getting carried away, yeah. but we didn't have a plan. You know, we didn't know what we were going to do. And, as an amateur band, we were covering a wide range of music, including songs by the Beatles yes. and um, the Rolling Stones and things like that. Although we did do some blues and we did some rhythm and blues, but it, it wasn't sort of a very original uh, uh, program when we did concerts. It was uh, it was like a lot of other bands did. So when it when it came to recording our first album, the pressure came on from Decca, as I said, and we just had to find tracks, sometimes, you know, at, at almost no notice, because we couldn't do covers of, of uh, Beatles tracks. That would be ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Their songs. So, I mean, I can remember um, there's, there's one on there, there's a, a Solomon Burke song on there, oh, Can't Nobody Love You. Yeah. And as, as I remember, I think I found that song in the morning before the recording huh. uh, with was done in Decca Studios because we were so desperate. Um, huh. And some of the other tunes were a little bit like that as well. And and also, uh, when that first album was being put together, it was done incredibly quickly. And there was no... Most of that is just like one take. Or, you know, it could be three or four takes, I guess. But a lot of it is all just one take stuff. And then an album would be released in mono and stereo. And I know the the Beatles favored mono recordings back then, and stereo was kind of seen as a novelty because I don't think enough people had it uh, as far as I, yeah. their stereo I think system. That's right, and 
Um, I think that we preferred mono as well. I'm not sure if that first album actually was recorded in stereo. It might have been done, I think it was done later. It was. I have it, it in mono, in. but uh, I think it might have been done, I have to check, but I think it, w- it was done in stereo. I just don't know if it was released at the I, same I time. It was done in stereo, and it, it intrigues me because um, through a relative of mine, I knew that it was being done. It was just Decker staff, engineers, and producers did the um the stereo mix we weren't involved in it at all and mm. neither was our producer and it's interesting because particularly on she's not there there was some small little drum fills that were added as it was mixed mm. and if you listen to the stereo um of she's not there those extra drum fills are not there so it's really obvious um if it's the uh, mono or the stereo, because it's it's actually slightly different. It's not just that it's mono and a stereo. It's the actual, you know the way it's played is slightly different. I never caught that. I'll have to check that out. That's a, that's strange. <laughs> yeah, if you listen to the snare, there's an extra, just like an extra beat in it. That's it's much more attractive in mono. I think also there's extra symbols. Um, as the song as the song builds there's extra symbols on there as well I think and for a a band member for a band member to discover that must be without knowing it must be very strange it was very strange and the first line it was kind of bizarre really because I had um, a cousin a girl cousin who was going out with an engineer at Decker Studios and she I don't think she told me she told her mom her mom and her mum told my mum and that's how I found out what they were doing but once we listened to it we we understood completely because it it, it is quite different well let's talk about uh the album of I love you because it was uh it's being released here reissued here in the states and originally it was only released in I think Japan and the Philippines correct I think that's uh and last year you released it, uh, it was in a 5LP box set called The Complete Studio Recordings. Um, but maybe you could talk about that, that uh, why it was released only in Asia at first. And, you know, it did have some, it did have, it had good songs on it. Um, maybe you could talk about it a little bit. Okay, well, if I could just say first of all that in that period, mm. uh, 64 to 67, yeah. We didn't have any control on, on what was going on. And it's, to some extent, that's still true about that period. Um, mm. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to stop recording with our producer at the time, Ken Jones. He recorded all the stuff up to Odyssey and Oracle. Mm. And particularly Rod and Chris wanted to hear their songs recorded in the, in the way that they... Uh, wanted them to be recorded you know mm. i can't think of another way of putting it um and and ken jones was very strict he didn't want us in he wouldn't let us stay for the mixing sessions and so you know to we we just didn't have any control over what was happening and that was one of the reasons that we stopped recording with ken jones and so also we stopped recording with decker and so when these records are are released it's you know it's like when I'm doing an interview like now, this is when I find out that the record's been rela- released. Yeah. I think in particular, with regard to the Far East, we had an incredible success in the Philippines. And yeah. 
you know, before I went to it, I've been quite a few times to the Philippines now, and I, I'm not proud of the fact that I didn't know much about the Philippines before I yeah. went there, and I, I imagined that they were probably, I don't know, small tropical islands in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. But when you get there, it, it's a big country. You know, it is made up of islands, but it's a big country. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, when we arrived, and it was a complete shock to us, we didn't know this. Um, the world was a much bigger place then. There was no internet. And um, we, we arrived thinking we were going to play sort of in a, a hotel somewhere, play in the foyer of a hotel. And when we got there, we opened to 28,000 people. Mm. And we probably had seven records in the top ten when we got there. So the Philippines has always been a special place for us because there was a time when, you know, pretty much every record we ever recorded was a huge hit there. And that might be why this album was originally released there yeah. and probably then filtered into Japan. I think we also had quite a lot of success in Japan as well, but we never toured there with the original band. We've been there with oh. the present incarnation of the band, but not with the original band. So the first time you went to Japan was only recently then, somewhat? Comparatively recently, yeah. yeah. Um, Interesting. It was probably seven or eight years ago. And... Uh, did they still, was there staying power? People were still into it, into the oh, music? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. It went incredibly well. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating country because it is so different to Europe or America. You know, in Europe and America, you can kind of bluff it and, and get by. Most people speak English. Um, it's, there are similarities between the cultures in Europe and America. But in Japan, it's just totally different. Yes. And I was, I was both fascinated and also a little apprehensive because I thought, if I get lost, you know, if I go out walking too far and I get lost, most people don't speak English. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure how I get back to the hotel, so I, I tried not to be too ambitious when I, when I went exploring. Well, then, then after, you know, obviously Odyssey and Oracle, uh, Time of the Season took off as a single... Uh, Odyssey and Oracle, I think it made, you were making a transition into an album-oriented band. And then the band, you know, the 69 Project, R.I.P., I guess it was scrapped and it became known as the band's lost album. Um, Maybe you could talk about that. A lot of those tracks uh, uh, were recorded earlier in our career. They just Mm. weren't finished. Yes. And with the success of Time of the Season, um, there was a lot of pressure to to get those tracks finished. Yes, and you know it seemed a shame to just leave them sitting on the shelf anyway. So we got together sort of one last time, and maybe it was over a period of a couple of nights, and just finished off those tracks. They they'd been started earlier, probably sixty four, sixty five, and I, I would imagine that um, we went and did some tracks, probably about sixty eight or something like that, maybe mm. sixty nine, and. They were the tracks that, that uh, came out on the R.I.P. album. Right. Do Things you, like, uh, was it... Um, Imagine a Swan and um, oh, If It yeah. Don't Work Out. Yeah, oh, I like If It Don't Work Out. When you love me
And it was fun to finish them off. See, the trouble was in 1967 when we were recording Odyssey and Oracle, it was probably the very end mm. of the business being, um, being totally interested, really, or principally interested in hit singles. Right. And um, when we finished Odyssey and Oracle, a, a sick Care of Cell 44 was released as a single in the UK, mm. and it, it didn't chart. And everybody was so disappointed. It, it just seemed that there wasn't any interest there in what we were doing. Looking back, it just seems crazy because we actually, the band finished before the album was actually released, before Odyssey and Oracle was released. Mm. But it was just the, the end of that period where the whole business was, uh, was founded on single success. By the end of the 60s, by 69, 70, the industry was based on albums. And it, yeah. we would have had a completely different approach. I agree because I listen to that album now and I have to listen to it as an album or I'm used to it. I don't know. Um, I enjoy it more as an album, even though I could listen to, obviously, Time of the Season as a single, right? But I like it as within an album. Is I don't know if that's strange, but... <laughs> no, no, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think it does... It flows very, very well. I but think. was that the intention, though? I'm... Well, I think, I think it was the intention. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just that we didn't get any response from anybody. Yeah. You know, I remember my feeling at the end of that album was that this is the best, the very best that we can do. Mm. Uh, there were great songs. Everybody played well. We recorded it in Abbey Road with. The wonderful engineers Jeff Emmerich and uh, Peter Vince in Abbey Road Studio 3 um, we, you know everything was on our side well, it had to be recorded very quickly because we had a very small recording budget but other than that um, I just felt it was the very best we could do and when it was released it really uh, you know got one or two good reviews but for the most part certainly commercially it, it was not a success I rem I remember hearing that you you went into Abbey uh, Abbey Road Studios only a few weeks after the Beatles completed Sergeant Pepper's. Few days. Yeah. It was a few days. <laughs> the, uh, well, I I always remember. Well, a few days. We, yeah, you're right. Yep. Well, firstly, John Lennon had left his Mellotron in Studio yeah. Three, and he used he it. Used that, he used that Mellotron, but the other thing they'd left um, percussion instruments on the floor like uh, maracas and tambourines and things like that. And I was just fascinated that we were picking these instruments up and, and playing them on our album, and the Beatles had literally been there. I think it was like a day or two beforehand. We didn't see them. They had, they had actually left, which was a shame. I would have loved to have met them. They left you some mojo. They, you know, left their things They behind. did, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, yeah. So what's next for the band? We're going to enjoy these reissues. I know I will, but what's what's next for the band? Well, I know you're waiting out. We, we started recording um, earlier in the year. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, because of this lockdown, we had to stop. But yeah. we've got three. We've got three songs in in the can. Um, we've we're working on two other songs, um, but for the most part, that's it's just talking down the phone and um, trying to send bits and pieces to one another. Yeah. Because with this album and with the last album, we're trying to record with us all in the studio at the same time. And a lot of 
a lot of times that doesn't happen nowadays. But no. we we thought in a way it's going back to how recording was way back in the sixties. And um, so to get us all together, we have to wait until this lockdown eases, which hopefully will be starting next month. Um, so say we've got three tracks finished. Mm. We're working on two others, and we have ideas for you know two or three other tunes. So hopefully we'll be able to use the rest of the year to finish this album. It's very difficult to say how long an album is going to take, but I would hope you know we've got six or seven months now before we play. So I really hope that we can finish an album before we come over and start touring in the spring. Are there any surprises for Zombies fans on the album? Is there, have you ex, did you experiment with new sounds? or? Um... Well, uh, what I can say is that the first three songs we've done are all brand new songs. Right. Um, all of the new lineup are, are playing on, on the track. So that includes yep. uh-huh. our bass player, who's only, I think, been with us about two years, and he's Danish, um, Soren Cox. And... Mm. Uh, uh, he's a great player, and um, so it's a new lineup, and we're we're all in the studio together. Which might seem strange to say that, but as as I said before, very often people don't even meet one another when they're working <laughs> on the same album because they just come in one at a time. Um, we're only three tracks into it, so I can't right. I can't even give too many secrets away because we haven't <laughs> actually recorded it yet. But um, have you tried? Like, have you tried any of these virtual, uh, like, Facebook Live, uh, you know, where you perform for the fans on an acoustic or something like that? Have you seen some of these I, things? Personally, I, I haven't. And, I mean, there's a good reason why I haven't done it. I, I do write songs on guitar, and, I, you know, I was the original rhythm guitarist in The Zombies, but I'm not the rhythm guitarist in The Zombies now. And I, <laughs> my guitar playing is it's not really up to... Uh, to doing something like that, I don't think it's, gotcha. it's it's a bit scratchy, to be honest. Yeah. I can, you know, I can write songs, but I'm not really comfortable performing right. in public for, on guitar. So uh, that's why I didn't do it. This could be the future of music during these virtual performances. It's interesting. Absolutely. Well, I think that there may be a lot of things that have started up in in music because of this lockdown that, that may well stay afterwards and in life in general you know yes. I don't think it's going to go back to how it was before no um, I think there are a lot of subtle changes that we're, are going to be with us permanently now yes I agree and, yeah. well thank you for taking the time Colin it's always a pleasure oh, to talk to you absolute pleasure yeah absolute pleasure and I hope to see you in the States next year when everything clears up um, yeah absolutely well hopefully fingers crossed We'll be over in the spring. Thanks so okay, much. All the very best. You too. Bye now. Goodbye. Thank you, Colin Blundstone. What a gentleman and always a pleasure to talk to. Remember to keep your eyes out for the re- release of the three reissues of Classic Zombies albums, the ones we just talked about on this episode of the podcast. The Zombies debut album, I Love You and R.I.P., all on vinyl, coming in July at the end of July. And go to goldminemag.com to get interviews, articles, and news on the music collecting hobby. You'll get a lot of exclusive stuff there, too. You can also find out about giveaways and get 68% off subscription price for both print 
and digital. Or go to Barnes & Noble and Books A Million every month to look for Goldmine on the newsstand. So this is Pat Prince signing off. We'll see you next time on the Goldmine Podcast. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.